Welcome to the Layer of Secrets podcast, the podcast about gaming and being a geek by two middle-aged geek dads. I'm David Moore, and I am behind editing for our podcast. And I'm Ken Newquist, and I've got a creature future problem, but uh, but more on that later. What what have you been up to? Uh, I've been up to a few things. Uh, delving back into VR again. I don't remember exactly. Oh, I do remember exactly why. We were talking about different technologies at work what we could do at work. And so I might be delving into VR for business purposes, which doesn't sound quite as fun as uh, fun purposes, but maybe that's why they call it fun. Uh, Had been seeing ads for Demio. And it's basically uh, as if you were sitting at a board game table playing like the old game, like Hero Quest or whatever, you have a, a randomized dungeon and you actually have miniatures that you you reach out and you pick up and you move. Um, and it's multiplayer. It's uh, up to four players. Our friend Chris, he and I got on one night and, and played a game uh, and it was fun. I would consider it Gloomhaven Light or Diet Gloomhaven because you basically, you have some special cards. You have, you have a hand of cards. And some you get back every turn, but the majority of them are you use it up and it's gone. And then as you pr- progress through the dungeon uh, or open up chests, everybody gets new cards. Um, so like as you quote unquote level up, there's no real leveling. You just get a card as you get more experience. And then as you strive and open up a chest, everybody gets a new card. And then it's kind of a mechanic of you kill as many monsters as you can to level up. You open as many chests as you can, but you don't stay on that level of the dungeon very long because the monsters will never end. And so <laughs> you have to find the exit to the dungeon. And sometimes you have to find the thing with the key to the exit to the dungeon and then exit the dungeon, that dungeon level and go down another level, do the same thing again. And then uh, eventually, like the ones I've played so far are three levels, and then that that dungeon is done, and then you can proceed on. And they've got kind of got a couple of modules that are like specific creatures, specific types of layout of the dungeon or, or visuals of the dungeon. Yeah, it's been, it's been pretty fun. I've, I've enjoyed it. It's, it's fun to do. You can sit down and do play for half an hour or an hour. And, and it's, it's pretty casual in that, in that sense too. So my question for you is gameplay sounds fun, but how does it feel to be wearing the VR rig for longer period of time? Like how long did you guys play for? And like, does it, does it just kind of like fade away because you're just immersed in it? Or is it like still, does it tire you out? Like, how does it, how does it feel? I mean, that's a good question. Um, like I've played Beat Saber and stuff for a good half an hour. And you're up full body moving around and you can be pretty exhausted after that. The headsets are light enough that they're not like dragging on the front of your face or anything. They're they're balanced enough. And the headset, if you've adjusted it well, sits pretty well on your head without hurting your head. I had, I played Demio for probably a good two hours solo and I'm sitting down as well. So I'm like sitting on my couch that's not so bad. The biggest problem that I had with it was that I was sitting, leaning forward as if looking down over a table. Um, okay. And so like my core and the back of my neck started hurting, which they totally have a thing where you can tilt the table up so you don't have to do that. <laughs> but it didn't enter my brain that I should probably use that functionality. I probably would have used that functionality, except that when the table is in like normal table orientation, you can look around the table and see the 1980s basement that you're playing in because there's, that's what it looks like. You know, they, they, they've styled your play area as if you're a kid in your basement playing in the 1980s sort of thing, complete with like CRT TV and board games and a shelf um, and <laughs> stuff that looks vaguely like the old D and D box set and such it's pretty fun it's pretty cool uh i i know they're coming out with a non-vr version of it i mean it should be able to be played the same way you know they don't have to make a whole lot of changes in terms of gameplay 
they'll definitely have to figure out how do you move move around the board your your viewpoint the, your camera around the board uh whereas in uh in the VR version you just kind of take your hands and just kind of move and rotate and zoom in and out maybe i'll get some more we can get some more players in if we have non VR people and VR people does it it's meant to be played hybrid I don't, like real, it's, it hasn't come out yet, but I don't see a reason okay. why it couldn't be played hybrid. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. I've been thinking about Oculus Rift too, just because like me, like you, you know, it's virtual reality is kind of coming around again and mm-hmm. like the tools are actually getting good enough to actually sustain it, you know, uh, as opposed to Second Life, like 15 years ago, which was definitely ahead of its time as we've kind of chatted about before. Yep. So I'm I'm curious, but I'm also like mindful of just getting lost in vr <laughs> yeah yeah as it's, tempting as that is <laughs> yeah it, it's not uh, oculus quest 2 is not that expensive i mean i think they're selling it like at cost or maybe even under cost for the price compared to other headsets at least right now right you could still play vr steam games there's two different ways that you can play vr steam games with an oculus quest 2 which is nice but you mentioned second life uh, and I found that I, I was, uh, we had talked a little bit about that before. I actually saw an article just this last week about that's about second, the CEO, the founder of second life, maybe delving into more of second life's VR side again, maybe even a rewrite. I don't know. I, I don't remember that mm. it's been, it's been almost a week. There seems to be a new impetus to jump into VR with second life. I think it I think it would be pretty cool if they were able to reinvent themselves and re-enter this sphere because the stuff that they were doing, you know, 15 years ago was definitely ahead of its time. They were much more they were much further along with the quote-unquote metaverse than anything right now. Right. Right, because it was it was truly cre- creators building things. Like you could yes. go, it was fun to go and hang out with your friends. Like I was never really great at building stuff, but other people were, and it it was fun to go out and hang out with a harping monkey crew, right? Like yep. so, it was it was definitely interesting, but not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. And so I'd be I'd be interested to see what a reboot looks like. Yeah, and if if the headsets that were out right now were out back then, oh my gosh, that would have been amazing. Yeah, right. Even if they were lower resolution, but still good with the spatial awareness that the ones are right now, uh, right. it would be, it would be an amazing, would have been an amazing time, but they didn't have cell phone screens like they do now, which is effectively right. the same technology <laughs> that's in the VR headsets. Right. Yeah. So VR Demio, that was really fun. Uh, I've also been. Uh, I think you and I talked about it, but wasn't on the podcast. I've been using Obsidian, which is a markdown editor, but it also, it's more than a markdown editor. It's a note-taking app, but you retain control over all of your notes, unlike OneNote or Evernote or any of those other note-taking type applications that are either always online or, you know, back up to a service. These are this is just on your machine. You control the app. You control the files in the app because the files in the app are just a directory of markdown files. They've got some really neat additional features to it, such as cross-linking between those markdown files. And if you cross-link between them, it actually generates a uh, like a force-directed graph of how related each of these different pieces are. So I can... Uh, one of the things that I'm going to be using it for is like in Dyson fall, one of the things I want to try and use it for is like when writing up things like the different factions in Dyson fall and, and I'll try it actually with, when, with our scum and villainy game, I'm going to write up all the it, things about the factions in scum and villainy. Those factions have different relationships. And I want to see if I can get that forced directed graph to kind of visually show the relationships of those different factions and how well they like or dislike each other. I don't know if it's going to be possible, but I'm going to give it a try. I, it's been interesting to do. Uh, it can do a table of contents pretty easily. Uh, I think you talked about Tiny Wiki or one of the other wikis that was very Tiddly wiki. similar. Tiddly Wiki. Yeah. <laughs> Tiddly Wiki, JavaScript based wiki. Yeah. And this is <laughs> like that, but 
because it's a markdown editor and you can shift it into reader mode really easily, as long as you know markdown as you're typing and then hit return, it automatically auto formats it visually how it's going to print out. But then you can also go into the markdown editor and just read all the markdown code as well. But markdown is really easy to do. And then you still have the ability of like a normal normal application, like a Word or another note-taking application to instantly create a new folder or a new, new document, whatever. Uh, in fact, if you link a document that doesn't exist, it will create that document for you. And then you can just click nice. directly into that empty document. It's been really good. I'm definitely going to be using it for our Scum and Villainy game to take quick notes since it's going to be online anyway. The one thing that I would love to have but I don't want to pay the price that they want to charge for it is they do have a, a, a mobile phone app for it that I haven't tested really because I don't have those files on my phone. You can sync. There is a sync service that syncs between all the instances of, of obsidian that you happen to own. If my NAS would sync to my phone the way I want it to, which is sync an entire folder worth of files, then it then I could edit on my phone, come home, and then open up the PC version, and it would just have all of my edits there. Uh, and that's what the sync that you that they charge for does. But I don't want to pay the price that they're asking for. I think it was gotcha a little too much. And there's another uh, piece that takes all of your Markdown files and not only creates a website, but also hosts that website for you. Um, I think they're using a lot of open source software that does this stuff already. The last thing that I don't like about it is that they don't give credit to those open source softwares, which is technically against the licensing of those open source softwares that they happen to be using and including. I'm hoping they get better. They become a better net citizen about that. But uh, but I'm I'm really liking the features and and such that they have for it. And then the last thing, you're you're quiet, so I was expecting you to have some stuff in there, because <laughs> like, we had talked about TiddlyWiki before. But uh, the last thing that I I've done in this last week is uh, the Collapsing Empire, uh, which is part of the Interdependency series by John Scalzi. The Interdependency is a multi-system. I won't say galaxy spanning because it's not really galaxy spanning, uh, but it's an empire that spans multiple different areas of the galaxy. They travel through what's called the flow and it's kind of like hyperspace, but there are entrances to the flow that take you somewhere and then it exits in that other spot, but it's only one way. And so a lot of times there's one entrance and one exit to the same spot in the same system. So you can go back and forth without a problem. As the title suggests, it's collapsing. You know, it's been stable for a millennia, but now a scientist has discovered that, no, actually, we thought it was nice and stable, but it's not. It's going to start collapsing within this next decade. And it's going to start slow, but then very rapidly, all of the flow is going away. And each each individual system is going to be cut off from everyone else. So it's about this new Emperox, which is the gender-neutral emperor or empress. Uh, the new Emperox has been, the last one dies, the new one is installed, and then she finds out shortly after she's installed that this whole thing is going to, <laughs> going to heck. <laughs> and so it's, it's her trying to save save humanity in some fashion mixed with all of the politics from all of the guilds and this church and such and all the lies that were built up around the building of this empire in the first place and so it's been it's been it was a it was a really good book ended in such a way that i immediately picked up the second book in the series and i'm already 70% of the way through it and so that's the consuming fire is the second one. And given where it is at 70%, I am probably going to be picking up the third book within the next day. What's interesting though, is I was reading the uh, interesting as well is that I was reading 
Scalzi's intro to the book and how he was writing the intro to the book in, I believe it was October 2016. So, like, just before the election was when he was putting the finishing touches on book one. And it's interesting, you know, he saw that a lot of weird stuff was going to be going on and was hoping that, you know, everything wasn't, everything that he wrote in this book wasn't going to come true <laughs> in terms of the United States. Um, but he's also, he seems to have a really good grasp on human nature especially even with like uh, how things have gone with the pandemic with people believing it, people not believing the science and just ignoring it uh, or totally believing the science, but then trying to figure out how to profit from it before everything all goes to heck, all that kind of stuff. So um, it's not the full center of the book uh, is all of that stuff, but it is, it is, definitely visible as part of it yeah i, I read it uh it was on my summer reading list in 2017 and oh, so okay. i think i think i read it in sequence over the next three years so i think i read it 2017 18 19 because i think they released on an annual basis and so i love scalzi i mean he's he's writes great books mm -hmm. um and i thought you know the th interesting thing that you know it's it's called the interdependency right is the yep. the whole arc of the series and what was interesting was like from a geopolitical standpoint the empire had been built so that every system was interdependent on every other system. It's why it's called the interdependency, right? And so that creates additional strains and conflict and interesting political problems because none of these systems can survive on their own, right? right. There's, it, it's all designed uh, to counter human uh, selfishness, I guess, like trying to make people, forcing people to work together by making them dependent on one another. And that's what the, why the guilds were set up. That's why the church exists. Like all of these systems, geopolitical systems were put in place to basically force people to count on one another. And right. then they find themselves in this problem where uh, actually now you're going to have systems that are cut off and they're not on uh, living, breathing planets. They're in orbitals, right? And they're not right. going to have the resources to sustain themselves. And how do you save some portion of the galaxy? And so, it's uh, it was a very interesting. It was a great read. I I just read through them. I will say, uh, this might be a turnoff for some people. There is a ridiculous amount of cursing. <laughs> <laughs> um, more cursing than I've read in any Scalzi book. <laughs> Lady Kiva Lagos does a lot of that. Yes, I think uh, probably you know fifty percent of the cursing in the book is is because of her, and, and it's great. Yeah. I mean, it's totally part of her character, and uh, it's all very much in keeping with it. But there is a ridiculous amount of cursing, so this yeah, is not going to be the, uh, the audio book you listen book. with your kids in the car. <laughs> right, not a kids book, not a not an audio book you want to listen to with kids. Yeah, it, with yeah, I, I like the fact that the interdependency is put together. I would say actually that the interdependency is put together to utilize the greed and lust for power that some people have in order to keep the whole thing together because they yes. basically instead of having free trade they specifically give certain guilds monopolies on things like growing food so it's right. like if monsanto was given a total monopoly on corn and no one could grow corn without a license to Monsanto. Even if they could grow it from seeds, they'd be violating that license and then would be fined for it. No matter what, even if it was like natural corn, they have a, mo a monopoly on it. They use those sorts of monopolies to make sure that all the guilds stay in line. Because if it's a monopoly, they don't have to worry about competition. They don't have to worry about cutting another guild's throat to make more more of a profit um there's still some of that anyway but right yeah it, it was interesting to see how they could put a, how you learn about the past of the interdependency and how it was put together uh and why it was put together and it was interesting to see how that would happen whether or not it would happen in reality and and it was very specifically put together it didn't arise naturally um, right so the house of Wu put it together very specifically. I'm, I'm looking forward to book three. I'm also looking forward, uh, to the Kaiju preservation society. I that saw that comes saw out that. within the next couple of months. And so that should be, uh, that should be interesting. Just, 
just the title alone is so evocative of even if I never read the book, I could totally write a story about a kaiju preservation society. It would not probably be anywhere near as good as Scalzi's, but it <laughs> just the idea of kaiju preservation just sounds amazing. Yeah, so definitely. definitely. So what's been going on with you? Well, uh, I have a creature feature problem, as I alluded to before. I just uh, I backed the Kickstarter for the Mothership sci-fi uh, horror RPG, the the first formal edition. There's been a, a zero, an edition zero, like the the initial release. Um, and I, I've read through it for some of my uh, like I said dinner table columns, and it's it's an interesting thing. I can't like delve too deeply into the mechanics because I haven't didn't read it that closely. Like I was skimming through, going, "Oh, this is something I'm interested in." Um, and and so it's like from the from the blurb. Uh, your, you and your crew try to survive in the most inhospitable uh, environment in the universe, outer space. You will excavate dangerous derelict spacecraft, explore strange unknown worlds, encounter hostile alien life, and examine the horrors encroaching upon you from every move. Um, with every move. And uh, that sounds cool. Yep. <laughs> you I know, agree. I think if you love Alien or you like any sort of like space creature features, this is going to be the game for you. And so uh, I backed it at the $100 level, which is a big in, but it's got the core rules, a bunch of cool expansions. And so I figure, you know, I'm looking at this as assuming it is delivered, it's fodder for other games. Like even if I never actually ran Mothership, you know, it's something that you could use with Savage Worlds, you could use with uh, Alien, you know, like in terms of just idea fodder, right? Like we talked about in an earlier episodes, stealing from other games to improve your own. There's a lot here you could potentially steal. Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of blew up. It was, uh, the Kickstarter went for $1.4 million from 15,699 uh, people. So a pretty wow. wide base. Yeah, it's... How it much were they wanting initially? Do you know? Do you happen to know uh, that? That's a, that's a good question. I have a link in the show notes. And so... There, it doesn't have a quick, let's see if I can click over to the campaign here. Uh, their initial goal is 20,000. <laughs> so a little bit more than their initial goal. A little bit more, but it, it added on and, it, and it's going to come like, so it's, it's also uh, old school in its format, right? So it's a box set. It's got like folio style designs for each of the different rules. Like it's pretty cool. Cool. <laughs> And it's it's got a lot of like interesting things. So like you know what, this sounds pretty cool. I want to back this. So it's coming in November of 2022. So I got a little bit a little bit of a while to wait for it. But you know, and I definitely have a creature feature problem because I've got way more games featuring creatures than I have time to play them. But you know, hey, that's what retirement's going to be for, right? <laughs> uh, I'm also contemplating getting Hull Breach, which is an anthology inspired by Mothership. Um, it's got dozens of new modules, bestiaries, equipment expansions, warden advice, system hacks, toolkits, blah, 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 from like 20 different uh, authors. Um, just an, appeals to me from an anthology perspective. But in that one, that's at 300. They've raised $341,000. Wow. From 4,500 backers. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I think it's got, I mean, I'm part of the Facebook group for. Um, for Mothership. And, you know, it's it's a cool community. I think it's just a community. It seems to be a community that just enjoys riffing on this particular subject area, right? Um, and so it's it's cool. I'm looking forward to, to playing it when it finally comes out. Who knows? I mean, I still, I still have the original rules and I could crack those, but now I'm kind of like, oh, I want to wait for the new one to come, right? Um, the uh, other thing I've been doing, I've been playing uh, Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3 Black Order. I think we talked about this, I don't know, a year or two ago. Um, okay. when the pandemic first started and I first got my switch, I got this game and, uh, I started playing it and then, you know, it's one of those games where you play it and then you leave, you put it down and then you pick it back up again. And you're like, I have no idea how to play this game. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. Cause it is a very much a button mashy. There's moves. There's certain, like the strategy comes from knowing which buttons to click when I'm like, okay, I'm just going to start over. Cause I, I'm having a miserable time trying to get through this game. So I started it over again. I actually paid attention to the tutorials and I'm really enjoying it because it reminds me a lot of the old X-Men arcade game. Okay. Right. Like the side scrolling X-Men arcade game where you'd have Colossus and Jean Grey and Storm and all that. And so it's just, it's just fun. You just kind of like sit back and just mash buttons for half an hour at a time. So, cool. uh, and it's got as a Marvel fanboy, it's got all of the, the Marvel characters, right? Like unlike the, the Marvel movies where they've been focused on the Avengers and guardians of the galaxy and what have you. I got all my X-Men. I've got like 
the uh what you call the defenders so you got daredevil and like the, the netflix shows right jessica jones mm-hmm. and then meanwhile you've got mainstream avengers as well so it's got all the tools it's got all the characters it has been a tremendous amount of fun well i mean i with the video games they don't have as much of a problem with the licensing issues as say disney has had um right you know, not having x-men and not having spider-man for a long long time so right and it, it reminds me of playing like the mar like the marvel lego games had the same sort of advantages right like yeah. playing lego marvel superheroes with my with my kids like they loved it and they had all the characters because they could have all the characters yep. so i mean is it a tremendously compelling and deep story now you're going out capturing you know infinity stones yet again but gotcha. uh, who cares <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna get to play phoenix at some point and uh really who could ask for more um I think Cable might be in it. I don't know. I'm, part of the fun is finding out which characters there are. Like right now, I'm still at the obvious characters, but it's got a really deep so as bench. You, so as you proceed, do you unlock characters? Yes. To play? Yes. Okay. You start off with the Guardians of the Galaxy. Then you show up at the at the um, the raft, which is the big prison in New York. Oh, okay. okay. In, uh, off the coast of New York in, in the Marvel Universe. And so then you encounter Spider-Man and Venom and like uh, Miles Morales and Spider-Gwen and what have you. And so and then it just keeps building from there so then you encounter the defenders and then you i just got to the x mansion which is when my my favorites the x-men show up so colossus and uh cyclops are just taking on some sentinels gotcha sounds good and then uh my last update is i'm making progress on the caverns of kazeel i uh i have my i have my notebook i gave up and i just decided to draw (laughs) yeah you were you were trying to decide if you were gonna draw uh things or try and find an online tool to draw it and so so you decided hand drawing just to get it out of the way and not not uh not procrastinate by trying to find the perfect online tool for yourself yes exactly so i figure my my thought here was i just need to get i need to get this done so i just need to start drawing and then i can take whatever i do either i'll just i'll take this and scan it or take a picture of it and upload it as my battle map i've done that before it works reasonably well i could do the same thing and then like overlay you know dungeon tiles on top of it and get something that approximates what i drew mm-hmm. but at the end of the day i just needed to do something we were actually just talking about this with some of our friends online and they're like you know what, what happens when you hit like this creative slump where you just can't get moving again and i think my answer is i just got to sit down and do it <laughs> right like i just start drawing something and then the ideas start to come and then you're like okay i've got this okay Mm -hmm. okay 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 i got it i got it (laughs) and so that was the impetus here right like just get it down just sketch it out like i haven't even put room descriptions on all this yet i have a vague idea of what's going to go where but it was really just like sketch it out i have a rough idea of what's going to be in the caverns and I have a like a, a big monster list that I had put together previously, and so now I'm just going to stock it with monsters, put in some descriptions, throw a little plot in the background, and uh, we'll be good to go. Sounds good. Sounds good. I know that uh, if if you wanted to have a, a more digital map, I think Dungeon Scroll does allow you to take an image and use it as a background, and then you can draw over it with Dungeon Scroll. But given the glimpse that I saw, you might not even need that. You could just take a picture of it. And- assign it a grid yeah i think the only problem i have is that it's so it's it's in a big uh gosh what's the name of the, the i always massacre their name the whatchamacallit lich term lich term yeah. lich term the typical folks who do the bullet journals yeah. so a couple of years That's ago on vacation i found one, one of these and it's a dot yeah it's a grid you can't quite see it on the on the camera but it's one of the dot grid books but just rendered large right right? so i've been using this for mapping for some time and uh it's cool and i was able to do a nice big spread for the dungeon because it goes across two pages and each it's like eight and a half by eleven each page is eight and a half by eleven and so it's a nice big space but you get the seam in the middle so Mm -hmm. you know i I think i can make it work online i don't my friends are just gonna be like whatever (laughs) yeah i mean (laughs) they just want to get to the caverns of kazeel (laughs) if you're going to publish it then maybe do something else with it. But just yes. with your friends think, online, you don't have to go crazy. Yeah. So if I were to, if I were to publish it and I have thought about, you know, like I've got some interesting little concepts going on with the caverns of Kazeel and, uh, uh, the starship aspects of my campaign. That would be an interesting thing to just kind of like write up and I think it do would. it in a way that you could drop into any campaign. Um, 
I think I still like I like my art style for like I think I I think I would hand draw them. I guess is what I'm getting at. I don't know gotcha. that I would do it with a computer, but um, I don't know. We shall yeah. see. That is uh, some way future date, you know, retirement. <laughs> <laughs> but when we do that, I won't be a middle aged gamer anymore. <laughs> we'll be see. like silver we'll age see. gamers. <laughs> yeah. Golden age, silver age. Yeah. We'll we'll depends on how many trips to the doctor we'll need to take. That that'll determine if it's golden <laughs> there age you or go. silver age. There you go. So uh, our main topic tonight is world gaming. Um, world building? World, world gaming. <laughs> uh, yes, world building. <laughs> I guess we're always world gaming. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, with, uh, with an eye on scum and villainy in particular, because that's what we still have yet to be able to, to plan. I mean, tomorrow, hopefully, we'll be able to get together to talk for a little bit about actually playing the game. You know, we're planning to play the, yeah, yeah. It's one of those things. We are building the game while we are building the world. Yeah, we're, life is hard trying to schedule a game (laughs) when you have to schedule people who are all over the East Coast and, or Eastern time zone. And uh, so, I mean, we at least narrowed it down to one time zone. Uh, There are plenty of people (laughs) that we would love to have in the game. But scheduling across multiple time zones uh, can be too difficult. I mean, it's already too difficult. It's been, what, a month and a half, two months <laughs> since we said we were going to do this? Still <laughs> That's all the memes months. about how impossible it is to schedule a game, right? right. Like if you have one wish to yep. get all your players together on one night and the genie just gives up. <laughs> right. Yep. Uh, so we wanted to kind of define what we meant by world building and, uh, you know, because world building can happen at many different levels. Uh, you know, when people think of world building, they might think of, well, I have to sketch out the continent uh, or sketch out the entire planet and show where the rivers are and all the cities are, et cetera, et cetera. But world building can also be zoomed way in and figuring out what drinks are available at a particular place, you know, at a particular bar it can be a lot of different things. Uh, And I think we're going to touch on some of those. Um, But since we're also going to be focusing on scum and villainy, I think we're probably going to be focusing more at like the city level on down or city might mean star system, but I have a feeling that scum and villainy cities might be the one biome planets like star Wars has. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yes. I can I can definitely see that being the case. And I think, you know, so talking about world building, I think one of the challenges, just what I was just describing with the Caverns of Kazeel, well, I ran into that with the same issue with Scales of Truth when I was starting to put the campaign world together because I was drawing the world maps and I'm like struggling to put together my hex crawl. We talked about some of this before. And so finally, I just sat down and said, okay, I have to just, I'm going to do a region. I'm just going to build that region. Right. So I think Defining your scope, just like in project management, is really important, right? Like, yeah. and give yourself permission to start small. Yeah, I that's I mean that's more of just a creative thing in general. Is if you plunk down a sheet of blank paper and a pen and say, "Go," you know, build your world. That's going to be something that's going to be really hard to uh, to start with. But if I say, you know, uh, build a region of the world where the pink elephants live and, you know, and describe their city, you know, immediately you're going to start thinking of things and you'll be able to, you know, if you give yourself constraints, it will, I think it will help. Yes, I completely agree. And I think the thing that's interesting about scum and villainy and blades in the dark is, is the nature of the world world building is a little different from some of the traditional RPGs that we've played in the past, right? So, especially I'm looking at you, Dungeons and Dragons, right? Like with a, with a game with a like a strong DM might be the wrong phrase, but where it's expected that the dungeon master is going to come up with a story, he's going to come up with the world, she's going to come up with the world. Like they're going to do the heavy lifting, and then the players are going to show up, and they're going to be active agents within that world. But the DM is expected to basically be doing everything right Mm -hmm. and i think that isn't necessarily true for all games i'm not trying to imply that it is certainly my games have seen lots of 
times where the, the players have pushed into that, have taken ownership of different aspects of the world they've taken on and then DM'd it. But, you know, those games are setting you up to say, hey, look, the DM is the one who is basically Pretty. defining the mood in the world and what have you, and thus they do the majority of the world building. With Scum and Villainy, a little different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like like Dungeons & Dragons or more traditional Dungeons & Dragons has been the GM comes up with the world, they come up with the setting, they come up with all of the other characters other than the PCs. Like everything that's going on in the world is pretty much defined by the GM. And usually, like in my experience, the only agency you have as a player to define something about the world is when you write your character background. Right. But even then, it was one of those things where we as players probably would have had more agency had we talked about it with the GM and said, right. Hey, I want to build this thing over here, this, this, whatever. And that ha- has happened in the, in the past in my game where a person's like, Hey, I want to come up with this, this knighthood concept. And, and, you know, that player and I worked, worked through that and, and talked it out. But with scum and villainy, it's explicitly written into the rules that certain things like this do happen. You know, like that's why you can call for a flashback and, and say, I actually set this up beforehand. Let's role play through it. It adds a lot more improv, but it also like it ta- and it it takes the surprise from the players of like, haha, I got you, or haha, look at this amazing thing that I created, and all the players ooh and ah. It takes away a little bit of that from the GM solely and kind of distributes it among everybody at the table so that right. amazing things can happen still will happen, but they're not the sole purview of the GM. Right. And I think for, for games like this and like fiasco and other games where you're, you're improving along the way, it's, it's that kind of world building is exciting because you get to the end of it and you go, wow, like at the end of the session, you you may have built things uh wholly knew that going into the session you didn't even know that we're going to be there and that that can yep. be a lot of fun but i think one of the challenges is is making sure that your your group is along for the ride like are they are they in <laughs> are they up for that <laughs> or are they were were they, were they literally along for the ride where they were hoping like oh well no i'm cool i'm just i just want to sit back and see what happens and i'll totally interact with the world but i don't want to do much um because it, it impacts it impacts the prep time and I think it impacts the mood of the game, right? Like because if you're in a game that's expecting you know a lot of agency from players and everyone's kind of like looking at around the table, uh, I don't know what to do next. <laughs> that could be a bit of a struggle. Yeah, yeah. And I've I, I think we both had this sort of thing happen of like some people really enjoy having agency at the table and being very involved, and some people are like, no, I'm. I'm fine with being told a story and I'll I'll be a character in the story, but not necessarily the main character. Right. And I think I think it's important to talk about those expectations up front. I think, you know, with, with my gaming group, as we've discussed before, it, we've been together for 25 years. Like we know who's into that kind of stuff. We know who's not into that kind of stuff. And it's all good. But mm-hmm. I think if you're starting in a, in a group from scratch, being able to talk about some of those things so that there's no like hard feelings. Right. Sometimes, you know, you can have people who are really into world building and they're going gung-ho and then they kind of look around and nobody else is doing it and they're like uh why isn't anybody else contributing am i the only one who cares about this game right mm-hmm. or you know the person who's not doing any of the world building feels like the spotlight is being like continually taken away from them and, and shown on the person who's doing all the world building but if you have yeah. that conversation up front and say hey look you know what are people's expectations what do you want to do Right. Because I've seen so many times online people have talked about this. Like, well, you know, I wrote all this backstory and my players aren't reading it. It's terrible. Like, well, did did you talk about that up front? Like, were your, were your players in for a bunch of backstory? <laughs> did they want the info dump at the beginning of the session? Every yeah. session? <laughs> I mean, that's that's piece of advice that you and I have heard throughout the years and and have espoused ourselves, which is, you know, talk with your players. And and I don't mean as GM talk with your players. You as a player talk with the other players you know, talk with your GM and, and figure out like Ken was just saying, you know, figure out what you, what, where all of you sit, you know, even scum and villainy, you could still be a person that doesn't, that isn't into the world building or isn't into the, um, being super proactive. You know, you can't have an entire group of that, 
but if almost everybody (laughs) is and you're like i am gonna be the guy that that goes along with the plan and does the thing does this thing um that's fine you know if that's if that's your personality if that's the way you have fun that's fine uh but you know in the case of like scum and villainy the players as a whole as the majority need to drive the action right right and so i think you know i love world building (laughs) it's one of those things that um i love to sit down and like just you know either because it's sketching or like stream of consciousness or whatever you just start jotting down ideas during the, the course of the day and you sit down and you start building stuff out um but like we were talking about in our game prep uh episode you know there's a risk in that and that you might not all use it, but as long as you're, you might not use all of it, but as long as you're having fun, mm-hmm. have at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, I, there was, uh, some stuff that I was listening to while we were coming up on this topic, you know, part of the reason why this topic came up where it goes back to game prep as well. When you're prepping a world, if you have a decent amount of the world prepped, you know, that you've built because you had fun building it, if the players end up there, that game will be richer for it. And you don't have to do as much prep going forward because you've already done that prep. Right. Sometimes, but like sometimes it's a a nice thing to not prep for a game like in scum and villainy and let the players define parts of it. Or even just, you know, if, if you're playing D and D, you know, ask, just ask the question, what does you know it's like well where are you going it's like oh, i'm I'm gonna go visit so-and-so okay tell me about so-and-so tell me about where they live you know and make the right. player if they're comfortable with it describe it and <laughs> there's less prep for you as a gm but you know also surprise and wonder for you as the gm yeah i think my my friends and i we, we ran an urban campaign called dark city uh many years ago in greyhawk in our homegrown city of obsidian bay and so it was great because we were all very familiar with Obsidian Bay, and so we kind of had all this campaign lore that had been built up over the years. But there were also lots of like side alleys and shops and what have you that we had never done anything with, right? Because you, you know, it's not the Forgotten Realms. <laughs> we're not writing Volo's Guide. We're not detailing every flower in the city. But the nature of that campaign was it was very much a street level, first level character sort of thing. And so you know, we would hit pause and say, okay, well, let's talk about that for a little bit, like. Let's build like at the table. You just kind of riff some on a particular organization or what have you. Let's randomly come up with a couple of names. Like, how did we think this works? Cool. And then you you, you, you take it off pause, and then you just continue along with the game. Um, I think that was it. Was fun. It was tremendous. It was a tremendous. Uh, it was a tremendous game, and it was very different from a lot of what we had done before. Yeah, and I think I mean that's that kind of goes into. I don't know if he explicitly said that this part of this topic is like what is your player's tolerance for world building? You know, like if, right. if your group or part of your group didn't like that at all, then, you know, that might not have been a great session for them. Uh, right. And, and that means that maybe you wouldn't do that sort of event as often, but if you have a, a group that is invested in the setting and really enjoys adding their own flair to it, uh, that could become just as much of the game as actually role playing and and playing the different plots or the different you know combats or whatever that happen during it. Right. So one of the things we have with Scum and Villainy is figuring out if we're going to be world building from scratch or world building world world building in an established setting or um, world building in the game setting. So you know. We, you want to talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, let's define let's define that a little bit. Like world building yeah. in an established setting <laughs> is like one of the questions that we have for Scum and Villainy is Scum and Villainy, the name directly ripped from Star Wars. It is the setting for <laughs> Scum and Villainy is a is Star Wars with the serial numbers filed way down. So one of the questions that we have is do we just want to play Star Wars? When we're saying world but world building in an established setting that's what we mean it's like how do you world build in the star wars setting because there's so much canon and stuff already out there what can you actually create then there's the world building in a partially established setting which is like say the game setting the actual game setting of scum and villainy 
has a bunch of pieces, but it doesn't have all of the history, all of the canon around it already. Uh, so there's a lot more that could be built there. And, you know, we're not going from pure scratch, which is, you know, near blanks, pardon me, near blank slate, or, uh, just like, Hey, we're doing something star Wars like, and then that's all that's said about it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. And I think that the great, the great advantage to using an established world, whether it's the forgotten realms or star Wars is that it's a common frame of reference, right? If, uh, there's a ton of resources out there, you can easily get caught up to speed. Uh, even if all of you're doing is like, yeah, we're going to be setting it during the original trilogy. So go, uh, you know, if you haven't already or done it in a couple of years, go watch episodes four, five, and six. That's the basis. Or we're doing the Mandalorian era. Uh, just, just go watch episode, you know, a couple episodes of the Mandalorian. You'll get a sense for what we're going for. Right. Um, same thing with the Forgotten Realms. You can be like, oh, well, it's in this particular region. Hey, remember that game Boulder's Gate? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's where we're, we're riffing off of Boulder's Gate. And, uh, you know, it's going to be on the Sword Coast. You know, there's a, a wiki out there that will give you all the information you ever wanted to know about the Sword Coast, right? And more. Um, and more. And more. Um, so there's a great advantage to that. I think, you know, the building from scratch is fun because, and that's what I've been doing with the, the Scales of Truth campaign, is that, you know, okay, I set this initial area, there's a region, I establish the very basics of it that the players have just been riffing on. But it's really mm-hmm. hard because everybody's got to have that, like you're building the mental model up from scratch. Right. right? And this isn't too bad because it's not too far off from D&D. Like we, we borrow a lot of D&D tropes and then throw in a little bit Thundar the Barbarian and, you know, a little bit of other science fantasy into the mix. But at the end of the day, it's hues close enough to D and D that you can get away with, with some of those tropes, right? Yeah. If you're truly building from scratch, then you need to think a little bit more about the, the dynamic, the dynamics, the physics, like as you were talking about, uh, do rivers flow uphill, right? Yeah. And is that consistent? <laughs> yeah. Like, like when you're building a world, you're building it. So you can make all those choices. It doesn't have to adhere to real world physics. Um, you can make wondrous things, but make them internally consistent so that people are believing that, oh, rivers, rivers do flow uphill because it's certain that's the type of water that's in this river. It just flows, you know, up instead of down, you know, but, and then you can easily get into other things of like, well, why doesn't it just fly up out of the ground? You know, why is it flowing uphill? (laughs) You know, and there, you might, it might not matter that might question might not ever come up or you might want to delve into that. And that might be some cool world building there. When I've run my, one of the dangers of a from scratch setting, like especially for D and D is, you know, it might players might come into it with, Oh, this is generic D and D setting number 87. And it's going to adhere to European mythology or uh, European uh, middle ages. And there's going to be knights and there's going to be castles, et cetera. Um, And, you know, it's going to be fairly generic gray and brown. Right. Part of your world building needs to, and and communicating that with your players, uh, especially if you're the one who's generating this world, has to, you have to evoke your world. You have to tell them about it. You have to not just info dump on them till their brain bleeds. Uh, but you still have to get the feel of the world across to them if it's not medieval Europe, you know, right. uh, you have to figure out how do you, how do you, you have to figure out how you can best portray that world to the other characters. Um, you know, I had that in my last D and D game, uh, when I was running my setting, which is, has some medieval Europe sort of flavors, but it is not that throughout the entire thing you know the elven kingdom is built out of crystal they're not the forest they live in a forest but they have uh they have a lot of magical uh abilities that have grown their city out of basically quartz like crystals and such and so there's there's more to it that's not oh we're gonna meet the tolkien like elves you know so there's there's different pieces to that that you need to that that are kind of a pitfall if you're creating things from scratch 
Yeah, I think I think conveying that information is important. And I think, you know, I, I just had this moment in my my scales of truth campaign, right? So science fantasy. I, I know that it's on a planet and I know that that planet has a ring and I know that there's occasional asteroid impacts that are, uh, and, you know, meteor impacts that are happening across the planet. I know that occasionally like chunks of the ring are uh, come raining down. I know some of those the ring elements are ion stones. Uh, we can't one of the side quests to, re to recover ion stones. Uh, it was there or sometime later. The point was I mentioned the ring and mind you, they're on the surface of the planet. It's a pretty big ring everyone would know that there's a ring right and the players are like what do what you mean ring? there's a ring what <laughs> ring what yeah well it's just yeah. so obvious to all of you that you didn't even think to comment on it but you know right the sage calls out the great ring in the sky <laughs> and the players are like what yeah even though their characters have known about it since they could look up <laughs> right and 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 so many of the you know so much of the campaign has been just kind of building it as we go but i think that too was establishing a couple of key things that the players could then riff on themselves so one of the key things like it's set in the serpent hills because there was an ancient reptilian empire that rose and fell and the relics of their civilization are all around just so happens that one of the players is a lizard folk librarian okay. awesome right so now yeah. he embraces the ancient, like, obviously, all things lizard and reptilian and draconic are vastly superior to everybody else. Like, he's very <laughs> speciest, right? But that nice. gave so much fodder for just, like, reinforcing the nature of, of the setting. And, like, yes, you know, there's this one bastion of civilization, and they're all idiots. <laughs> they're not all idiots. They're, they're all, I'm trying to use the right words without cursing too much, right? They are, they're just kind of like insufferable jerks, <laughs> academics, gotcha. and they're all lizards. <laughs> so they gotcha. look down on everybody who's not a lizard, right? Yep. But that just became from the very first uh, session, part and parcel of the campaign and helped reinforce the tone going forward, even if I didn't tell them about the giant ring. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I have a slight aside here. If I was playing in that game, I would probably play a character that would taunt that lizard librarian of like, you know, every time he would say, Oh, the lizard, you know, that lizard civilization was so amazing. It's like, yeah, they're dead now. Right. You know, <laughs> they're not around anymore. We are right. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And then it gave rise to, you know, the world's most interesting dragonborn who, you know, he's ridiculously high level. The players hired them to get hired him to guide them to the caverns of Kazil. He's ridiculously competent, right? Like he nice. is a Forgotten Realms NPC and I'm playing him that way and it's fantastic. And he's nice. like riffing off of, but the players are really enjoying it as opposed to like hating it. Right. Like, right. He does right. occasionally like he'll do things and they're like, okay, that, that was legitimately cool. We still hate you. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but we digress. Nice. I think at the end of the day, you have the same problem actually with with no matter what you do, right? If we do a homegrown setting or if you do the book setting or we riff on Star Wars, we just take Star Wars wholesale, you need to establish what the starting point is and where the setting is and, and be able to go from there. So I've yeah. seen this in, uh, I think, in a campaign I did for... Second Darkness. It was a Pathfinder campaign. Um, might have actually been a D&D 3.5 campaign that we used uh, with Pathfinder. But in any case, uh, it, was an, it was one of their adventure paths. You know, it's got like six different books uh, set in their world. And so we didn't know much about it. And the great thing about what Pathfinder, what Paizo was doing, was they were releasing like these little primer books that gave you like, here's the player's guide to this campaign, right? Like, here's the city where you're starting out. Here's like what the current geopolitical setting was within that city um if you have these different backgrounds here's some things you can take advantage of feet wise and so it did a really good job of setting the tone for that particular campaign and i think mm -hmm. borrowing liberally from that <laughs> you could you know coming up with a primer like we would have that for scum and villainy not everyone necessarily has the book right yep. we're teaching them the rules what have you you know or they haven't had time to read through it and even if they had read through it they wouldn't know what part we're using right so having a right. primer that says okay we're starting off on this planet here's the next two nearest planets here's what the how they relate to the empire you know yeah I, and there's like there's some stuff that we won't be able to do like like as gm i wouldn't be able to do until we sit down and create the crew and the ship Right. Because right. part of the world building starts right there. 
you know, right, which is what the makes players, the setting so interesting. <laughs> yeah, all the players sit down and say, "We want to be one of three types of people. We want to be bounty hunters, um, which can be described as like cowboy bebop style bounty hunters, or like Star Wars standing on the deck of an Imperial Star Destroyer when Vader's telling them no disintegrations, kind of bounty hunters. Um, so it could be that you could be smugglers." Uh, which could be like on solo type smugglers or could be like um, firefly type smugglers, you know, really down on your luck, barely scraping by type people. And then I'm trying to remember the third ship. Like each ship is each, each ship is designated toward one of those three. And so uh, one of the other things that they've said during character creation is because people may not have read the entire book, they're not expecting everybody to, uh, is to pick like three factions that they know of and be able to describe the GM should be able to describe them to the players. Um, and then the, you know, I think it's like three or three to five. And then the players do need to pick the three that they have a relationship with as a crew by the end of character creation. Right. Um, if I recall, there's like, I mean, there's a ton of factions. Uh, there's probably like 30 or so I'm guessing. Um, that sounds I'm not going right. to, I'm not going to count them right now. <laughs> 36 actually. Cause you can, you can evidently they have a table of factions. I'm assuming these are all of them, but they're, they may not be, but you roll 2d6 uh 1d6 is the tens and 1d1d6 is the ones and it goes up to 6-6 so that would be 36 yeah 36 different factions so you're not i'm not going to know all 36 i don't expect the players to know all 36 <laughs> um and you don't need right. to start with that many you know it's kind of goes with like plan goes back to our planning stuff is you only need to world build enough you need to figure out what that enough means, but you only need to world build enough to make it through a couple of sessions, I would say. Um, you know, you don't need to have an entire source book of material written in order to in order to play a game. Like, especially if you're if you're from scratching your world building, uh, you don't need to write that much. Um, you know, you can just detail an area that you guys are going to be adventuring in and expand from there. Um, with scum and villainy, there's a lot of stuff that I want to read because there's stuff about the Ur, the ancient race that has left artifacts all over the place, you know? And so some, some parts of that are really interesting to me. I don't want to delve too deeply into planning all of that because the players are going to be the ones who are in control of where they want to go. Right. The idea of that you were mentioning about the primer uh, or primer, however, however that's pronounced uh, <laughs> of like establishing this, the, the tone in the era. Um, if you're going with an established setting, you know, nailing down what portion of that established setting you're going to play in is, is probably good as a, as a primer for it, you know, like episode three, four, five. Uh, or sorry, four, five, six uh, of Star Wars. You know, it's like we're playing in that era. Just wa rewatch those for some ideas. If you know more, that's fine. But if you're new to Star Wars at all, just watch episodes three, you know, four, five, and six. Uh, that can be your primer. You don't have to write it down even, in my opinion. Right. Yeah, and I think, you know, we did that for my current D&D campaign, which I'm a player in, not, I'm, I'm not actually DMing it. But uh, it's set on the Giant's Plane in Forgotten Realms, which is, uh, I think it's, it's located next to Om, Om, A-M-N, Om. It's part of, from like, Boulder's Gate 2. Okay. Um, and so we're vaguely aware of the region, but we specifically selected, or rather our GM specifically ex ex selected it, because one, he wanted to run a series of one-shot adventures where you're just like, you go to this shrine, you, you're finding all of these lost things. Um, and so we didn't actually need to know any forgotten ones, right? Like we're in this area, the nature of the plains is that civilizations have risen and fallen. There's enough lore there that we can pull on to kind of like 
fill in the gaps where you need to. But the initial goal of the setting was, and the campaign was, we're going to be playing in a place that's in the backwaters of, of the Forgotten Realms. We're part of uh, a guild that is basically um, dedicated to collecting mundane knowledge, like documenting that which has come before. And gotcha. so we're not in Waterdeep, but if we had, you know, if you were, if you were a person who's like, oh man, I love the realms, I cannot wait to adventure in Waterdeep, this can be fantastic, urban campaigning is great, like, yeah, this is nice. <laughs> right, right. Your audio was a little weird during that, but I didn't want to cut you off. Knowing exactly where in the setting, you know, like, if you're not adventuring in Waterdeep, but you know all about Waterdeep, and you're off somewhere else in, I can't even, I don't know enough about Run to even name another place <laughs> going off there. Uh, but like you need to make sure that the person who really knows Waterdeep, they can talk about it all they want, but they need to be informed that no, we're not actually going to play in Waterdeep. Right. Although it does bring up one way to play in an established setting uh, that you and I had talked about outside the podcast, uh, which is to upset the status quo of the established setting. Uh, Judd Carlman and uh, uh, way back when they were doing when he was on Sons of Cryos, uh, I believe it was Judd that brought this up, was they were running a, a Faerun campaign and there were a lot of people who really knew the Forgotten Realms in the game, but he didn't necessarily know it as well. And so what he did was very first adventure, they're coming into the dale where they're going to meet this this old wizard and they're like oh yeah we're going to meet elminster and we're going to talk with him and all this kind of stuff and as they enter the dale they find elminster crucified at the entrance to the dale and that instantly yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like instantly it's like this is my campaign setting now you know there will be things that still are true but don't expect everything that you have read to still be true uh, when we're playing this game. And so he, you know, so immediately, you know, some of the things are like, who killed Elminster? Why did they kill Elminster? Are we going to go after those killers? All that kind of stuff. You know, all those immediate plot hooks spring out and, and capture the player's attention at that point. And the setting isn't as, Setting is still important, but it but adhering to the canon of the sec of the setting is not as important. Right, right. And I think you know one of the things that my friends and I struggled with when we first started playing Star Wars, we thought about playing Star Wars was canon. Um, canon was more of a straitjacket, right? Like, like we all know how everything played out. How do you how do you play in that setting? So you know everything has played out. And I think now that we've gotten older. I could totally see us being tolerant of radical ideas. Because uh, when we first started playing Star Wars, we played in the next little public era because we could pretty much do whatever we wanted, right? Like, canon right. was two video games and these sorts of These days, like, like, I could see running a campaign about what happens if Luke went in with Vader, right? And they do move the galaxy as father and son. Right? Uh, a what if campaign. What if Kevin? He's still on all the boys, but like I don't know, maybe Granddad will have on leading the rebellion, right? Because he has seen like you know the error ways, right? Like still do all of these interesting things, like Skywalker sending Death Squad after right? Like what does it look like when he's trained the new Sith order, right? Interesting. Right, and so yeah, that's what your episodes seven, eight, nine, nine, like right? Yeah, you can take the first, you know, you can take the first order. I think it's the first order. It's been a while since I watched the, uh, the uh, movies. movies. First but, order? Uh, you know, you take that, take that. The first order? First order. I think so. Yeah. It's been a Is while. That a, myself. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. That sure, sounds whatever. right. Right? Just take those ideas. Yes. One with them. Right? Like, right. like you know, yeah. just just break Star Wars all the way. And then it helps. And it helps. Right. The person who wasn't super into Star Wars can still play. And people who love Star Wars can figure out how to, like, turn things around. Turn things around. Right? Like, I mean, I could totally see how it would have, yeah, I could totally see how it could have started. The canon would end at Empire Strikes Back in Luke and Vader's battle on Bespin. And instead of jumping out, jumping back out of the carbonite freezing tube, he actually was frozen in carbonite. And then Vader took him off, took him away. And then so Han is frozen in carbonite. Luke is frozen in carbonite. 
Leia gets away with Chewie and Lando and and 3PO and R2 and that's that's the you know that could it's like what happens after that yeah, I could totally see, see him see it like Luke is about to explode it and he's like he's like he realized a lot of like, like he never knew his mother mother like like what is silence and anything else he takes his father's father and now like now, like he's his sister's to dark side he hunts down you know like like all sorts of stuff. I'm going, going totally stupidly simple. I know Yeah. All of all right? Yep. But in any, in case, any case, it gives you all kinds of ideas. Kind of ideas. You just start listening off your own, right? And it makes it easier because you've got, you've got all this great, great fodder out around there. Just making it. Now you can do it as a quest twist. I think we're done. Done. We talked about. Scum and villainy versus Star Wars, you know, like partially established setting, fully established setting, how you play in a fully established setting, you know, a couple different ways, you know, find a niche and expand it or blow the setting up, you know, in, in some ways are another way are some ways to do it. We talked about world building a little bit about world building and less established settings with scum and villainy. We really haven't talked about that as much, except for the fact that we're going to as a group be tolerant, but also just allow our imaginations to run wild. And it's not just like, if I'm running it, which I think I am, I'm not going to be the only one coming up with the game. Uh, you know, everybody there, I mean, that's built into the kind of the DNA of scum and villainy is everybody's going to have a chance to say, Oh, I know a guy I've got a line on this equipment. Those sorts of things will happen. I think taking notes is going to be, <laughs> it's going to be necessary to make sure that I remember and we all as a group remember what's what's happened and who's created what during the game. We talked about like if you're building your own world, you don't have to stay near reality. You know, rivers can up, up flow uphill if it makes sense in your world. I mean, heck, they Star Wars had a giant space slug that lived in the asteroid field. That's not reality here. So why did it need to be reality in Star Wars that asteroid fields were completely devoid of life? They weren't. Do crazy stuff like that. One thing we haven't talked about is uh, make your world unbalanced. And what I mean by that is like not everybody on your world, like in today's world, not everybody in the world has cell phones. It's not everybody in our world has running water. That political economic balance is something that, that can add interest and add opportunities for your characters in your world. Uh, and it also, you know, leads to certain social and economic and, and structures that can really define the setting and make it unique uh, and fun to play in. I'm going to take us out because your, your audio is unfortunately, um, evidently you are on a water planet today. <laughs> for, for this portion of the show i'm gonna say thanks everybody for listening if you have feedback we love it you know you can send it to us at podcast at layer of secrets.com uh send us a message on twitter at layer of secrets you can also visit layer of secrets.com and leave us feedback on the actual post and we have been uh every so often streaming on twitch and we are Layer of Secrets on Twitch as well. So go ahead and give us a follow and it'll alert you whenever we go live. Uh, we do try and stream on Tuesday nights uh, when we record. And then the episode comes out whenever I happen to have finished editing it later. So if you want to see it early, uh, check us out on Twitch. Well, thank you and good night.